We had no money, so I had all my friends that were basically paid on commission, um, and we had like uniforms, and we were our own sales force, going door to door to door, and I was delivering in a rented U-Haul for the first six months, and it was a nightmare. Hey everyone, this is the Founder Hour. We're sitting here with Ryan Emmons. He's the CEO and founder of Waiakea. They are a sustainable premium Hawaiian volcanic water. And uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so uh, you grew up in California. Well, sort of. Um, you're, you know, uh, splitting your time in childhood, uh, you know, living in Santa Barbara as well as going back and forth, you know, from Hawaii. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I grew up in Santa Barbara, um, and basically, you know, not a bad place to grow up um, by any by any means. And spent my summers and winters in Hawaii, uh, pretty much every year, um, because I have a lot of Hawaiian family. Um, my on my mom's side, um, mom grew up there. Uh, had a couple generations. I'm Haole, which is um, what Hawaiians would call. Uh, basically like a white foreigner, usually not with a good context. Um, but, <laughs> but a lot of, all my cousins on my mom's side are Hapa, so they're all half. Um, and, and yeah, just had a really good upbringing being on those, both those places. Um, super active lifestyle, very much focused on obviously like environmental stewardship and kind of how we can live, cohabitate and live uh, within our means. Um, and had also a really, really passionate mom and dad that were really into community involvement. Um, and so, you know, over time, that's kind of, those are kind of the principles that ended up um, really being instilled in, in the brand. Yeah. Awesome. And so, you know, uh, you decide to go to school here in California, you know, went to USC here in the heart of LA. Um, what was kind of your, uh, I guess, vision for college like what did you hope to accomplish when you went to, to, to college so I was lucky because like a lot of people obviously going uh, into college don't know what they want to do I had kind of done some entrepreneurial things in high school I had started this like really cheesy uh, board game called Santa Barbaraopoly <laughs> yeah it's as horrible as it sounds um, <laughs> but, but, do you still have one of those games? Uh, dude, I had literally like 10,000 board games left over that oh. were in my parents' basement until like last year, and we donated them all to, to uh, the Unity shop in, in Santa Barbara. But, uh, but we raised, basically we, we got all these local businesses to pay for spaces um, on the board, uh, and we raised like $40,000 for uh, Katrina. Um, back in high school so that was like my first little taste and I like love product development love branding love the community involvement aspect Um, but yeah so I kind of was like you know maybe I'll do something like that Mm -hmm. similar kind of triple bottom line business Um, you know I freshman year had really kind of the background of Waiakea was my Hawaiian uncle had access to this water source Um, and we we never ended up using that source, but it kind of piqued my curiosity. It, it, he had kind of tried to start his own uh, bottled water business and it had kind of um, hadn't really been able to get it off the ground per se. And, um, you know, that piqued my curiosity. So I started basically obsessing about everything like water related. So like bulk water, 
uh, trade between nations in these giant Medusa bags that carry like a hundred acres of water and the literally t- tow boats, uh, mm-hmm. not tow boats. Um, yeah, tow boats. What are they called? Anyway, we'll assume that they're called tow boats, but they basically, um, they would tow these giant Medusa bags that flow underwater um, that are able to kind of go with the currents, Mm -hmm. with the uh, naturally kind of, I believe it's called undulating or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was super obsessed about that, and I thought it was like really interesting. A lot of countries in the Middle East had started doing it, Australia started doing it, but the cost of... Um, setting up these bags and all the infrastructure was like you know tens of millions of dollars I'm like 18 I'm like eh, probably not super practical Um, and then I also started looking a lot at water infrastructure um, because of all the water waste that we have in our in our in our plumbing and our water systems throughout the US um, and, and this then, is all so, when you're 18 years old yeah I'm just like doing research USC has like an incredible like I had $300,000 worth of research reports relating to water that I had access to at 18, which was sick. And I, I'm like a very obsessive person. And when I like kind of lock into something, I'm like all in. And you can ask my family and my girlfriend about it to the point where sometimes like they're like, you need to chill out and like go outside for a second. Um, but, you know, so I, I was obsessive looking at every aspect of water and ended up coming and looking at CPG. Um, and just saw an opportunity because in the super premium water space, you had, um, you know, a bunch of players, but typically only about five major super premium waters um, in the U.S. And they were really only differentiated through an exotic origination story and their design. And what I saw was that none of them were addressing these trends towards environmental packaging environmentally friendly packaging which was a huge deal it was actually the only reason why um, the year before um, actually it wasn't because of the recession that the bottled water industry took a huge hit it was because of all the negative PR associated with the, the environmental concerns right. um, and I was like no one is addressing these everyone's greenwashing no one is addressing the trends towards natural alkalinity towards electrolytes now they've a lot of them have started to address that mm-hmm. um, and none of them are creating engaging brands. If you look at the content that they're putting out, it's like their Instagram or their, at the time, Facebook, it's just like a celebrity holding a bottle. Totally. Um, or a regular person holding a bottle that's like in a bougie setting. And like, I don't give, I don't give a shit. Like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, and, and I so, think you guys, I mean, not to cut you off, but I no, think please. you guys have done a fantastic job with just the branding. And I mean, you've made water sexy. You know, which is weird. It's like, yeah. you know, water is water. It's a little hot, yeah. But, you know, you guys have made water, at least when I look at your branding, your website, the social media, all that kind of stuff. I want to be engaged with it. I want to buy it and just try it out because I'm like, it looks it looks good. Like, I'm going to look good if I drink this yeah. water, you know? And I think the goal there was really to elevate it to being something more than just being known as a premium bottled water. Yeah. So having content, like people aren't going to engage with just a bunch of, a bunch of photos of the bottle. They're going to engage... With you know a incredible sunset photo um, that is showcasing someone's story of the the work they did mm-hmm. in um, in a reforestation project on the Big Island, right. um, you know, with with you know beautiful original content 
um, that's building around this live healthy, live sustainably, live ethically brand mantra that, right. that Waikia has. So anyway, we spent basically the next, once I realized that I, I felt like we had an opportunity and obviously my professors were like, you're crazy, you're going up against multi-billion dollar companies, like you're never going to get shelf space and all this shit. Um, but I felt like we really did have a niche. Um, I'm really glad I launched it. I started to think about it and launch it early because I was still naive enough to think that we could get into the industry. But I kind of latched onto this early because of my obsessiveness and because I really saw the market potential. Um, also because when you look at premium bottled water, it's one of the few beverages that's scalable in literally every single channel. Mm-hmm. Food service, fitness, hospitality, convenience, conventional, natural, um, international. Um, and on top of that, Hawaii, if you look at Hawaii as a brand, Hawaii is synonymous internationally with high quality um, and is arguably the one of the most exotic places in the world. Uh, but again, high quality, not in terms, not only in terms of what it's producing and the, and the products that are coming out of Hawaii, but also because of its, uh, of how it's connected, obviously, with its a state. It's in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, versus a lot of the other, you know, Fiji doesn't necessarily have that. Fiji is an amazing brand, but if you look at internationally, do people really care about Fiji as much as they do Hawaii? And do they know about Fiji as much as they do Hawaii? No. Um, and so kind of started to really develop the platform around that. Mm-hmm. And then we started looking at the success of Fiji. What things can we kind of duplicate or, or kind of piggyback on? One of them was, you know, the iconic square bottle, okay? Because they were the first PET bottle. So plastic, even though ours are post-consumer recycled plastic. Um, you know, so we were like, we don't have tens of millions of dollars in premium marketing money. So how are we going to kind of be able to immediately solidify ourselves as a premium brand without that? Okay, let's kind of, you know, continue where they left off so that people already know, hey, this is a premium product um, without us having to spend all that money. And, and so, and we started to modify, develop the color, the brand, everything while I was still in college. So and this was all in your classes at SE still? Yeah, I was all working with my Hawaiian was... cousin yeah. um, on the design. We did everything. And then um, I had a co-founder who was a, a, an offensive lineman for USC, mm. Matt Meyer, mm. um, who uh, left about three years ago. Um, still on the board, still really, really good friends, still has, has all his equity. Um, and... Um, yeah, we basically we got to a point where um, finished the business plan class um, junior year, and um, we but so you graduated, like you stayed all four years. Yeah, we graduated like, early. Was it hard? So we like graduated while you're in college. You know, going your classes, running this. Yeah, so I was like really nervous that I was not going to be able to graduate in time because we we had like set this hard deadline. We just graduated a semester early, um, but you know, Matt and I had set this hard deadline, and we were doing like. I think we were doing like 24 units our last semester um and yeah so it was a little bit gnarly and I remember I had like I had like three finals one day that semester and I was really worried that I was not going to pass at least one of them and it would fuck up everything so I, I was so anxious and we had like set up product deadlines for when we were going to launch this thing I was like we were ready to go and we had kind of mentally checked out at that point um but yeah, passed and, and um, you know, we basically got to a point where um, we moved to a loft uh, downtown and that was like our hub. And uh, I started having a bunch of my fraternity bros and a bunch of my friends kind of help us out as interns um, and started kind of hitting the streets. Um, 
getting pre-orders. And then June of 2012 is when we uh, had our first product uh, and our first sale, which was actually at uh, um, our first two sales. One was at Calmart. Uh, our second store was, uh, was actually a restaurant at Bottega Louis. And then, yeah, it's kind of, that's how it all started. You know, obviously it's very impressive. My question to you is, you know, you're going to school, you're starting this company. You know, you did say you were naive, obviously, at that point, because you, you were jumping in and, you know, trying to battle these billion-dollar companies. What was driving you? I mean, besides, you know, being confident in yourself and your abilities, I mean, what made you believe that, you know, you could do this? So I, I think it, that's where the naivete comes in, because, like, no one in their right mind should, like, think when they're, when they're 20, 21 that they'll, you know, be able to start a premium bottle water company that's going to compete against everyone. Um, I think it was based off the like focus groups that we had done, all the market research, like, you know, I'm obsessive, but once I, if, if I'm like obsessive enough and I think my feasibility analysis is really, really solid and I've been doing this for three and a half years, you know, I kind of trusted my gut that we really had something, even though I had plenty of people that were telling me that I was crazy. So I was, I was convinced at that point that there was a huge market opportunity, that it was scalable, and that if I was able to hit certain inflection points, um, we would be able to be successful. Um, and I really also believed in the brand, and everyone else did. Um, so when we got it in, you know, when we first had our test product and we were showing people what it was all about and we were building out our website, we were building out the brand, the reception that we got was, was like really, really good. Um, and so it'd be different if I did my feasibility analysis and I put out a product and everyone was like, bro, you should probably just like get out while you can. Mm -hmm. But like that wasn't the case. I had people that were super stoked um, and I had stores that were like, you know, sign me up. And then when it came to actually us launching the product, you know, all of a sudden it started selling. And that's kind of when I was like, oh shit, um, you know, we got something here. Yeah. I mean, it, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's water. And so the, the, like, what would you say, um, like the common kind of thought process for, you know, founders or even students who want to be founders and entrepreneurs and kind of, you know, start their own businesses you know, looking at really niche kind of markets and industries and projects that maybe don't exist, you know, and um, oftentimes get burned out or, you know, create something that no one wants just because yeah, it's niche. For sure. Um, what would you tell those people who may, you know, be thinking about going into a highly, you know, competitive market? Because there are industries that are archaic that may be competitive, but, you know, could, you know, be subject to innovation and, and, sure. and revolution. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? So, I think that. A lot of people, like the first argument in any industry that a lot of people have against uh, an industry is it's so competitive or what is there to stop anyone else from doing it, okay? And, you know, that to me is just like such like a, a, an elementary response to anything and, we've, and that's been proven time and time again. You can duplicate any app, you can duplicate any, you know, apparel item, what have you. It's all about brand building. And so I think, you know, in terms of understanding the potential of your product or, or of your company, I think it starts, A, with the understanding that there are going to be plenty of people that are going to be telling you, like, anyone can do this and that you need to build a brand unless you do have a patent or you have, you know, some IP that's super powerful, that's very unique. Yeah. 
But with both of those things, if you do have the IP, or if you don't, and you're trying to build a brand in a competitive industry, you need to know your market potential, you need to know the scalability, you need to do your feasibility analysis. Um, It's all the brands and all the companies that I know that have failed, um, you know, the ones that have failed, um, you know, it was either because they didn't run the business right, they didn't have enough capital, um, but they at least got to a point where they had proven out the potential of the business, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so there are, you know, there are plenty of reasons for a business going out of business, but there were so many businesses that don't even get close to a million dollars because they didn't really look um, at, at the scalability and the potential of the market, at the risks, at... You know, and, and doing a feasibility analysis really prepares you for that to a certain extent. There's plenty of things that I had in my feasibility analysis that I, you know, looking back, I'm like, it's, it's like laughable. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least I had somewhat what of an idea of, of where I was going and I was prepared to a certain extent because of that. Yeah. So, I, so, so, yeah. You, so you have the idea, you know, you have kind of a, a, a brand kind of, you know, thought of, of what you want the brand to be. Um, where do you start? Were you the one kind of going, calling, cold calling people, door to door, whatever it was, trying to you know get your water in the stores? Like, how did you go from being in one store to you know all the stores that you're in now? And how many is that? Yeah, so now we're in close to like four thousand stores, um, and so we'll be between probably like seven thousand, eight thousand um, in twenty eighteen, um, and nationally, which is pretty exciting. Um, but you know, we started, we started. <laughs> We were self-distributing. We had like a couple accounts in, in Hilo, um, but in the big focus, you know, you, Hawaii is a very small market. Um, and so we wanted to start in Los Angeles. Um, so we basically, we had no money. So I had all my friends that were basically paid on commission um, and we had like uniforms and we were our own sales force, like going door to door. and. I was delivering in a rented U-Haul for the first six months, um, and it was a nightmare. Um, and I never want to do my own distribution again unless I actually own my own legit trucks and I have legit truck drivers, and you know that's a, you know, a business in itself. Um, but yeah, we were just renting U-Hauls. We were doing drop-offs ourselves, um, and so we we built up you know one account after another in in LA. Uh, ended up with a base of like fifty accounts. And it had some really good, again, talk about case studies, uh, really good minimum viable product. Um, and and it was selling, and I took that to a, just a little distributor. Um, I'm not sure if they're still in business, but uh, it was called Rick's Running Water, mm-hmm. which is a very funny name, very relevant. Um, but he was a super small distributor. He had like two of his own trucks, um, maybe even one. Um, but he was a distributor based in Orange County that did a lot of stuff in L.A., and uh, I, I showed him our sales and I showed him our account list and I was like, can you distribute for us? And he was like, sure, I'll take a shot at it. And that was really like our first distributor. And then we grew out his base um, to like 200 accounts in LA, um, started attending, you know, we wanted to grow the brand in natural and specialty because everyone kept on telling me, you gotta grow your brand in natural and specialty, Whole Foods, that's the way to do, it's the way you build a brand. Um, in retrospect, um, I agree the importance of a lot of these like pr- premium channels in terms of the brand building, but I know like 70% of the CPG brands um, that I'm familiar with 
have gone out of business because of how difficult natural specialty is, including like UNFI and CAHI, mm-hmm. uh, the, the natural distributors. Um, but at the time, we felt like it was super important. Uh, and so we, you know, we weren't making good money. Um, but we got Whole Foods. We were attending these trade shows, getting more and more chains, more and more independence. Uh, so was there any point in that process where you felt like, like, you know, things are just like not working out in a certain, you know, aspect that you felt like, no, this is, I'm not doing this or like, was it just kind of like a, you know, a, a, a graph was pointing out? Oh, ride no, for know? sure, dude. It was like really painful. I mean, it's like everyone says really like peaks and valleys. Um, but you know, we were, it got to a point where we were the first like two years, um, we knew we had something because, again, because of how the product was performing. A lot of brands, um, they'll have like big backing and they'll spend a shit ton of their money on promotions. Um, we didn't have any money for promotions. And so we were lucky. Like The reason why we were able to survive the first couple of years is because our, our product was like selling itself. Um, but we still weren't really making any money. Um, and I think that was – and we didn't know what we were doing. You know, I had a team of, I, I had a guy that my director of sales, who's actually still my director of sales, um, he came from a, a soft, he was a software salesman, um, selling like uh, Excel training videos. You know and what I mean? Annual recurring subscriptions. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> and and no, and so and then and then like the other guys on my team, we we had like six guys that we stuck into this like two bedroom house, and um, it was. No one had any idea what the, what the hell they were doing at the time. I'm going to be brutally honest. Um, and I think that was the most stressful part was I hadn't really yet realized how important it is to have an advisory board. Um, and so, you know, the highs and lows were really, um, you know, being stoked about closing in a new deal and new sales, but also um, figuring out funding um, you know, I was putting all the money I had into the business that I had saved up through working throughout college. Um, then we started getting friends and family involved because we had to. Um, and it was, you know, it was kind of a free-for-all and we were just trying to survive and build out our base, build up more case studies with the idea that eventually, you know, we could validate the business model, validate the concept and really raise the money that we needed to be able to scale. And so it was always, let's just get to the next inflection point, which is us, at the time, that was us doubling our sales every year. Mm -hmm. And we've still done that, Mm -hmm. and that's always been our goal. That's the big inflection point. Mm -hmm. But making sure, like, it was super stressful. We, we, like, we ran out of money so many times. Like, I feel like a lot of founders of CBD products have the same story, which is that they had, like, extended all their... I have... I'm going to show you here. I'll show you right now. I have literally... (laughs) Look at this. I have... I have fucking. These are all business. Taking out all his credit cards. These are all business credit cards. Okay. Two. I have. So this is five. These these are in a pocket in my backpack. I have another seven that are in my wallet. Okay. And the point is, we were doing whatever it took. We were maximizing credit cards. I mean, my credit was like shit for a while. Now it's better because of how the company's done. But like. You know, I was asking for loans. We were doing whatever we could to keep yeah. it alive because at our core, the one thing that I knew, even though I was, you know, inexperienced, 
I knew we had a good brand. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was selling. So anyway, we were I mean, but wasn't something telling you, like, you know, I have 12 credit cards. Like, you know, is that normal? No, it's not normal. It's like, oh, but, you know, I don't know. It depends on who you ask. There are definitely plenty of people that are like, you know, they did whatever it took. Um, but, you know, like Califia Farms, mm-hmm. um, they just, the, the founder of Califia Farms just uh, did an interview with like how I built this. Mm-hmm. And, and he talked about kind of how he was in a, a similar boat. They yeah. knew that they had a great product. They believed in the product. But they went out of business so many times. And he literally asked his his mother-in-law to, to, he kept on going to her for money. And eventually his wife called his, uh, called her mom and was like, you can't give him any more money. And, you know, I wasn't in that situation. Um, but I think that's situ- a great tip for our male listeners that are married. Make sure you have a great relationship. Yeah, great relationship with, with mother-in-law. Yeah. You know, because you, you, you never know when you have to cash it in. Absolutely. No. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, but seriously, it's, it's, you know, I think that's the part that scares a lot of people is, you know, especially later on in life when you have a family, when you have a wife, um, when you have a mother-in-law, um, it's, you know, you don't want to ever be at that point. So I, I, that's something that I am I'm very thankful that I got to kind of get that out of the way early on. Um, you know, when I was a little naive, when I was more into, you know, taking bigger risks. Um, but there was a lot of anxiety with cash and there still is I mean I you know we're just finishing a raise right now for three million dollars and you know we I put in uh, I had like a barely I had like a little amount of savings that I'd had because I've had like a low salary over the last like two years Um, and I literally I put all, all the remaining savings and I actually facilitated a loan where I'm a guarantor which I had already done, already done. Yeah. So more of the story is that just um, you know most of the lows have had to do with cash, and most and the other lows were also you know operations focused because we have a very complicated supply chain, um, and we had just a lot of issues with like production, with the custom equipment that was required. And this is all stuff that you just kind of had to learn on the fly. Like you didn't know yeah. anything about it. I had no idea about bottling. No, I had no, no family in this. Business, no family nothing. in the business. Nothing. My co-founder, same thing. Like we, it, it was all steep learning curve. Um, but but the one thing that kept us going was the brand and the fact that we kept on having sales. So you know the worst thing, like the thing that you that I'm really glad we never had to worry about was we never had a brand that didn't sell. We never had to worry about sales. Uh, and obviously we're getting to a point where you know we've had to consistently innovate and look at our opportunities to be able to continue to double every year. Mm-hmm. But um, you know our industry is uh, is so scalable in terms of all the channels. I'm still not really worried about that. What it comes back down to is, okay, do we have the systems? Do we have the ops in place to be able to scale? Do I have the money to be able to, to scale? And, and really, that's been consistent the whole time. Ryan, you know, I think we should definitely touch upon also the actual product that you're selling here. I think a lot of the listeners, you know, and also myself, when I first, you know, saw you and then, you know, heard from you and kind of looked into the brand, what really kind of was interesting to me was this whole Hawaiian volcanic water, the volcanic part of it. You know, sure. it was a little, you know, I was a little befuddled by that yeah. uh, until I did my research and kind of learned from you. I was a little confused. So why don't you kind of walk us through exactly what that means and, you know, what really is going into the Waiakea water? For sure. So, um, you know, 
the whole basis of the Hawaiian volcanic water is really we wanted to differentiate in a category of uh, spring waters, artesian waters, etc. Um, and also create kind of a novelty uh, um, play in terms of the mysteriousness of you know what is a Hawaiian volcanic water. Um, and it's, it's obviously descriptive of what it's going through because it's being filtered through about 14,000 feet of porous volcanic rock. And that's what's giving it that smooth mouthfeel. That's what's enriching it with all these trace minerals, magnesium, calcium, daily recommended in, intake of silica, um, all of these things. And so for us, it was, you know, people pick up the bottle first and foremost because of its design and its color when they see it. Um, it's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful bottle. It's a beautiful yeah. bottle. It's my it's my baby. I'm the, I, 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 love, I will totally accept that compliment. Um, Do you drink coffee out of this too? Just like yeah, yeah. I'm about to. <laughs> no, but like honestly, I reuse my bottles like all the time. Yeah. Um, the nice part is it's like pretty high quality R pet, so you don't have to worry about BPA and stuff like that. Um, but so so yeah, I mean, we wanted to. It had to pop off the shelf in comparison to other brands, but at the same time. Being positioned as Hawaiian volcanic water also kind of implies like functionality. Um, people are—it's going to pe- people's curiosity, um, and so you know that's really why we wanted to brand it that way, kind of a blue ocean strategy, if you will. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I think yeah, that's you know we also the logo for us was super important. Mm-hmm. Um, having the volcano there, and I don't know if you guys noticed, but we actually have a volcano at the bottom of our bottle. Um, that's a volcano with like multiple streams. Um, I re- I did recognize the top of the bottle. Yeah, yeah. And, and the top of the bottle is obviously supposed to be a volcano as well. Yeah, this is an amazing looking. Product. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, I love your um, you kind of sort of mantra, right? Is like live healthy, live sustainably, live ethically. Could you kind of like tell us a little bit more about how you came up with that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, that is kind of your brand, right? For sure. That that's that's totally our brand, and. Um, those are kind of the, the pillars of how I've like lived my life growing up in Santa Barbara and Hawaii. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I love my brand, you know, it is reflective of like what I believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for, for us, it was, it starts with the health, you know, when you filter through all that volcanic rock, again, it's enriched with all these trace minerals. Um, it's also naturally alkaline, uh, and it has four times the electrolytes of smart water, but they're naturally occurring. Um, so your body is more easily able to absorb those naturally alkaline minerals, those naturally alkaline, those natural electrolytes, versus say, um, you know, tap water that has baking soda to make it have a high pH, uh, sodium bicarbonate, or um, you know, has an electrolyte packet. Um, and then with regards to the sustainability, you know, it was really important to us that we didn't greenwash and that we really set the tone in terms of industry standards because, you know, it, a lot of people question me because they know that they consider me kind of a little bit more of like an activist, if you will, yet I own a bottled water company. Like, I've had so many people bring that up. Yeah. And, and my whole thing is um, bottled water is not going away. Um, it's not. It's one of the fastest, it's the fastest growing industry in, in CPG. Uh, and in beverage. Um, and so I can have the biggest impact by changing the industry within the inside. Um, you know, better to light a candle than curse the darkness, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. Um, 
And so by, you know, we, we were the first premium bottled water to use 100% ARPET. So our bottle has a 95% smaller carbon footprint, 90% smaller water footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's just like one thing. Then we also offset the entirety of our logistics, our manufacturing. Our facility runs off of 33% renewable energy. Um, these are all the type of things that we felt were super, super important in terms of establishing a new industry standard right. with the hopes that other people would realize that that was one of the reasons of many why people were adapting our brand and 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 kind of leaving their brand mm-hmm. with the hopes that more and more brands started adopting this as, a, as kind of an industry standard uh, because then the impact that we can have is great. Eventually, I'd like everyone to adopt the nanotechnology that we were trying to launch in 2018 that's going to allow our bottles to degrade if they end up in landfills and oceans. Um, and so, you know, again, it's, it's talking about bigger picture. If something's not going to go away in the next 20 to 30 years, how can I, um, how can I create the most change? Um, and the last part was, um, you know, we, we wanted to be the first triple bottom line. So, you know, that starts with people. So people, planet, profits. So we've addressed, you know, the planet, but the people is super important too. So for every liter that you buy, we donate a week's supply of clean water to people in need in Malawi, Africa. So we, we install these UN award-winning elephant pumps, primarily in Malawi and Zimbabwe, um, because we felt like we're so lucky to have this source that has a recharge rate of 1.4 billion gallons a day, where um, you know so many people don't have access to clean water. Um, and then additionally, we spend about 2% of our revenues towards local community projects in conservation and education uh, on the Big Island. Um, so yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of the platform. And it's a platform too that, you know, it's expensive. No one else is doing anything like that. You know, you have certain companies that are doing like 1%, they're part of the 1% for, mm-hmm. which is like 1% of profits. Yeah. Um, and I understand in terms of like, you can have a much greater impact if you're able to scale and have a smaller uh, percentage that's dedicated towards, you know, community and charity. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of those companies are making a lot of money. And I think it's really important to have a more sizable impact, especially if you do scale at that point. Um, and so, you know, we, we felt like having a, a significant give back component to uh, to benefit people that are a lot less fortunate than we are right, right. Um, is free is basically free and powerful marketing mm-hmm. so that we can have more loyal ambassadors and more loyal yeah because I mean as, as, as good as your water is and as amazing as you know the the mission is like these these aren't priced too high like you're not like there are water there's so much so many other water brands out there that are you know priced in the four five six dollars and what, what like what would this kind of you know um, one liter so the one liter is so like Fiji would retail for like typically like two twenty nine to two forty nine for a one liter. Mm-hmm. We retail for two forty nine to two seventy nine, mm-hmm. and then like Voss would retail for like two seventy nine to two ninety nine. Yeah. So we're kind of in like a really nice price point, right? Um, which is probably where we'll stay. Mm-hmm. We aren't really worried about like price competition because Fiji's already lower than us, right? So it's like um, we're in a really good spot. Mm-hmm. Ryan, how often do you? Or are you, shall I say, how often are you faced with situations where you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I've never run into the situation. I don't really know what impact my decision is going to make. Mm. And what do you do when you're in those situations? 
So earlier I like kind of mentioned the importance of an advisory board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would, if any entrepreneur that's listening, like the first thing you need to do is put together an advisory board. Don't just have a bunch of people that you have on your deck, you know? Like you need to have, they need to have some sort of stock options. You need to have rhythms for how many times you're gonna be checking in with them on a monthly basis to review your business model, your business. Um, you know, I recognized really early I think I had, there was a little ego the first couple of years, but um, that's just because I was like, you know, loving being an entrepreneur and I was felt like I was grinding and, and doing something big and um, that was exciting. But, you know, very quickly, I also realized I didn't know shit. Um, and so, you know, it was extremely important. Whenever I, I face things that I don't understand all the time, um, over the years, I've been able to bring a together a team that's able to augment the areas of um, the areas of expertise that I have no expertise in, um, which has been super, super important for us to continue to scale. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they don't really recognize that and they try to do everything and that's fine maybe the first couple of years, but you're really the only person that's holding yourself back. Um, and so it was a combination of being able to, you know, bring in um, some of those, some of those really good um, team members, um, and then also being able. Whenever I have a question that I don't know, I have I have my advisory board on speed dial, and you know at this point, there's things that I am not going to fully know, um, and I'm not going to be able to immediately make a decision on, but I'm not necessarily faced with, you know, huge issues where I am at a loss for what I'm going to do, and I just feel like completely helpless because I've been in that situation so many times before and I know I've always been able to figure out a solution or my team has or I've been able to you know talk to people who have been able to provide me different options right so there's a certain comfortability and confidence you get over time that really enables you to avoid that feeling of complete helplessness obviously as, as an entrepreneur especially as a, like a solo um, you know, because my, my co-founder hasn't been with the company for three years, there's a certain bit of, you know, you can definitely have your moments of, like, loneliness and depression, yeah. like, and kind of feeling that you're, you know, like, just overwhelmed because yeah. you have no one to share the burden. Um, but, again, that's where, you know, your team comes in, your advisors come in, and also having a really good personal life comes in. Yeah. You need friends and family because otherwise you're fucked. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this is such a common thing with, with a lot of founders and entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, you know, like, like yourself, where, you know, you're kind of the, you, you hold, like you said, the burden of, you know, whether any decision or any hardship that you're facing, um, it's, it's all on you pretty much. So um, how important, I guess, it is to, to you um, and, and kind of your thoughts on having that kind of North Star where, um, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in so many things, you know, from a small scale in your business or even like things that you may want to venture into that maybe aren't, are not so important right now and you need to kind of focus on your core of, of your business. Like how important is that? It's super important. I mean, the one thing that, you know, I, I'm the first to say is I am not the best CEO. Uh, I've tried to be better, um, but I'm like a classic kind of visionary um, CEO and founder. Uh, I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. Um, and, and I've kind of gotten to a point where I'm like okay with that. I've accepted that. I haven't accepted that to the point where I'm not trying to improve anymore. Um, but I've accepted that you know I'm not going to be this this 
all-star. Um, with that being said, it's been nice because when you're growing so fast, you can kind of focus on doubling your growth as really the only prerogative, the only priority. But eventually you get to a point when if you are doubling your growth every year, a lot of you start to have a lot of issues with your systems and your ops. And you start to need, as your team builds out, different priorities within each department that filter into your company priorities and your company goals. And it can't just be revenue anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's funny because if you guys look behind me, um, yeah, it's a, it's a white wall full of a bunch of writing. I'm yeah. to figure out what it says. Yeah, so, <laughs> so these are, so we have, like, we actually just did this exercise yesterday, um, which is basically, it shows all the different departments and Basically, we're trying to focus on the top 10 critical uh, procedures and processes that we need to, um, that we should prioritize and accomplish this quarter. Mm -hmm. So this is like an example of, you know, it's not just revenue. We're focusing on now the processes that are most important to the company to be able to achieve that revenue goal. That fin- those financial goals. So we've gotten a lot better. This is like a perfect example for behind me. So yeah. whatever. It's like you're almost con- like constantly iterating on like every little aspect and just like any improvement is an improvement. Yeah, and we have like we have you know we have five company priorities for next quarter. Um, that's going to not change for next year. But then all of our 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 department priorities have to be related to those priorities. Uh, because at the very least, if we accomplish those things, we'll be in a, a really, really good position. Um, but it took a long time for us to get there. We still have a lot to improve in terms of how we run things. Um, but you know, the best, most well-run companies—that's the way they operate. You know, they aren't scatterbrained. They know what the most important things are. But it's taken us, you know, five and a half years to really yeah. get to a point where we we understand how important that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know. We realized that because we had a lot of issues um, because I was off doing my own thing, uh, you know, even though I felt like I was super in tune with every department, um, you know, there are some, there are always things that are falling through the cracks when you're growing so fast. So this helps us kind of really stay on pace. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I read somewhere that you're the well that you have, you've rented for 99 years. Is that right? We, we have a 99-year lease, so lease, yeah. that was the original well. Um, yeah. We've switched, and now we have, um, we, we basically own our own source, mm-hmm. um, okay, which is cool. awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that was a big step for us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, same, same altitude, mm-hmm. similar aquifer. How often um, do you go to Hawaii? I'm there a week a month. Yeah. And you have an office there, correct? Yeah, so our, our facility is at the source. It's, like, not big. It's 8,000-square-foot facility. Mm-hmm. It took us years to kind of get up and running. Um, still have a lot of issues with it. Um, we're actually going to be we're doing an equipment overhaul and putting a, a million dollars into our facility in the next, like, two or three months um, to prepare for next year. Um, if, you have, if you could tell me how difficult it would be to run your own manufacturing operation... Um, you know, I, uh, it's been very painful, um, but I'm, we're, we're finally getting to a point where we're kind of making headway. So I'm excited about that. But yeah, so I'm, I'm there about a week a month, but it's no, it's not like, I'm not like drinking Mai Tais on the beach. I'm like in a manufacturing facility working on the line with the rest of the team, drinking a lot of water. Um, but, but yeah, it's a little bit less, uh, exotic if you will. But, uh, you know, I get, get to. 
I try to go paddleboarding in the morning and do stuff like that, which is nice. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You talk a lot about, you know, the importance of personal life and family and friends. You know, one struggle that I have, I think Patrick has, I think a lot of founders, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, just folks that are trying to be unconventional have is, you know, time management, energy management. How do you manage your time and energy? For sure. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say that I manage my time pretty horribly. Um, I've done a lot better in the last couple of years. Um, I'm like hardcore ADHD. Um, Self-diagnosed? Yeah, so I like, well, actually also diagnosed. Diagnosed. But I I never did like, you know, Adderall or anything. I probably should have. It would have helped me a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But like, you know, it's... So what happens is I I basically... I I already have an obsessive mindset. Um, And so, you know... One thing that I've been doing the last year is mapping out my days the night before. Uh, that is literally the most important thing for me in terms of time management and being effective with my time. But the problem is, as a CEO who wants to, you know, not micromanage, but at least know every single thing that's going on, is it, that means you're, you know, checking in on a lot of emails. Um, and so the thing that I'm working on right now is, you know, setting up quiet hours to work on my projects for, you know, new product development for for bigger strategic thinking. Um, and then, you know, kind of structuring the rest of my day with, with emails and meetings at a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm the first to say I do not manage uh, my time as well as I could. Um, this is one of those things where I acknowledge uh, my faults and that I need to improve on them. Um, but it's tough when you have a lot of issues coming in at you all the time. Yeah. Things change. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really, even if you try to really stay in a rigid structure, you need to be flexible. So that's why I'm not like super hard on myself because at the end of the day, if I'm accomplishing what I'm so supposed to do as CEO, um, and I'm still able to make sure that everyone else is being effective uh, with their time and feeling supported, then I'm okay with being a little ADHD. Totally. I just wanted to kind of quickly plug in why we're doing this. It was because, you know, we listen to those podcasts like How I Built This and all those other entrepreneurial business marketing type podcasts. And a lot of times it's stories of like super successful multi-billion dollar company, multi-billionaires that are, you know, rather, you know, at the end of their careers, most likely. Even For not. Sure. And, you know, I think they've either forgotten the struggles that they gone through when they were building the company or, you know, just as like early stage entrepreneurs. But I think that's why Patrick and I sat down and we said, you know, we really want to hear about, you know, what founders are doing in the beginning, like when they're just founding these companies or, you know, the struggles that they're enduring right now. Because I think that there's more value in that for, you know, just listeners in general about hearing those struggles, hearing the problems that you're facing as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as opposed to somebody who's reached that point of, you know, you know, high success. And, you know, they probably forgotten all the things that they went through. So, you know, for Ryan Emmons, what does Ryan Emmons see himself or how does he see himself in the next, you know, 10 years? Is it still with Waiakea? Is it, you know, working on several different projects? For sure. Well, I would start with, I think it's super important to document, like, the hardships to a certain extent uh, without getting bogged down and depressed with all the shit that you've gone through. So I actually kept a list and, like, if you guys saw my list, I'm not going to share it because it has, like, some, like, private details. But, like, you would be like, what the fuck? It's, like, really, really disheartening to see all the catastrophic issues that could have put us out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I do it because I can re- refer back. I actually stopped. I stopped doing that because it was just like at this point, like you know, I, I can't keep on doing this. Like there's yeah. so many different things. Like okay, I get it. Like that was a phase that I'd like to put behind me and start focusing on the positive things. Um, but so I want to start off with saying like every entrepreneur has those moments. Um, some have a lot more of them than others. I have a lot of advisors that have that have launched CPG companies um, and you know everyone has their own problems and some industries are harder than others. Most industries are, are going to be difficult in some ways. All of my advisors and mentors have told me that they've that we've dealt with more bullshit than they could have ever imagined. Uh, but that being said, um, you know, I'm never going to forget those things, and that just makes me appreciate more where we are and, and and where we're going. So over the next like 10, 15 years, you know, I have no idea what the future holds. I mean, my goal is to really bring this brand and, and make it an international brand. Um, and, you know, we have some partners that we think can really help us be there that have similar core values, um, such as King Swyan, uh, who are investors, um, uh, which is, you know, and their, their goal is to, is to really... Um, is to really put Hawaiian foods and beverages on the map globally. And I, you know, I want to be there as long as I can to kind of guide that vision. But eventually, you know, I'm the first to say again, um, you know, I think we could bring in a better, you know, president or CEO that could help operate the company. Or um, we have a VP of ops with someone that's more like internal ops. Um, And, you know, I kind of maintain more of the strategic product development, maybe CMO or just, you know, um, chairman role. Um, but I'm going to be here as long as I need to, to make sure that it's in good hands. Uh, eventually, if, you know, we might get some good opportunities and I might decide to take a breather and go elsewhere, uh, which I probably would like sooner rather than later. But that breather might just be me taking some time off and having the first actual vacation that I've had yeah. in five and a half years. You yeah. know what I mean? So at this point, I think, you know... Not I'm, counting Hawaii. Is yeah, it? yeah, exactly. Definitely not <laughs> counting Hawaii. Um, but no, but seriously, I love my brand and I love my, I love my company, but I, uh, you know, I'm open to wherever the future takes me. Well, Ryan, uh, you know, it's been a great conversation. You've, you know, it's been five years. You've built an amazing brand so Thanks, far. Man. So, you know, no doubt you're going to continue to grow and be successful. So, uh, yeah, really great chatting with you. You know, thanks so much for being on the show. For and sure. you know, all the best. The best of luck with everything. Awesome. Thanks.